Welcome to the July 2018 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Last month, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of this show. And this month, we're going to freshen things up with some new segments that are going to help you dig even further into your family history. We'll kick off each episode with a quick look at the events that impact your family history in a brand new segment. It's called This Month in History. And then we'll get social with Rachel Fountain, the social media director at Family Tree Magazine, who'll be taking us on a quick jaunt through what folks are talking about online in the new Social Media Minute segment. Now, of course, we're going to continue to bring you the top tips that you love and that you need from some of the top authors and experts in genealogy. And that's going to be followed up by the DNA Deconstructed segment with genetic genealogy instructor and author Shannon Combs Bennett. And of course, I want to continue to bring you the best of the genealogy websites that are out there online, as we always have. But we'll be following that up with the best of what's offline with the stories from the stacks, where we're going to dive deep into the treasures at top libraries and archives. Then we'll wrap it all up with any last minute things that you got to know about from the editorial staff at Family Tree Magazine in the This Just In segment. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up, This Month in Family History. This Month in Family History, we're turning the clock back 45 years to a disastrous event that lit up the hot skies of July of 1973. It was the fire at the National Personnel Record Center in St. Louis, Missouri. I've invited Teresa Fitzgerald to the show. Now, she's the Chief of Archival Operations at the National Archives in St. Louis, and she's going to give us a quick overview of what really happened. Hi, yes, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Shortly after midnight on July 12, 1973, a fire was reported at the National Personnel Records Center's Military Personnel Records Building. It completely engulfed the sixth floor of the building, destroying all of it and part of the fifth floor because as they were spraying the fire with water, all of the water was draining to the lower floors. Now, this fire damaged 17 million military personnel files. Uh, The damage occurred from both fire and water, and what was lost was Army and Air Force records from 1912 to approximately 1963. 80% of Army records were lost, and 75% of Air Force records were lost. No one quite knows what actually caused the fire. It is speculated that someone smoking in the stacks started the fire, but that has never truly been proven. There are a lot of conspiracy theories behind the fire as well. Well, everybody stay tuned because as you can hear, this was a devastating event. But later in the show, Teresa is going to be back in our Stories from the Stack segment. And she's going to give you some of the alternative record collections that can help fill in the gaps created by the fire. This is Rachel Fountain with your Social Media Minute. This week, we asked our followers what research questions they had about DNA or adoption. Bob on Facebook had a question about the free online database, GEDmatch.com. He wants to know if GEDmatch is strictly a matching site. The answer? GEDmatch can be used for much more than just making matches. 
You can use GEDmatch to identify shared segments of DNA, analyze your DNA with multiple ethnicity calculators, and compare your test results to others who tested with different companies. You can find out more about how to use this versatile tool on FamilyTreeMagazine.com. Be sure to connect with us on Facebook and post your research questions at Facebook.com backslash FamilyTreeMagazine or on Twitter at FamilyTreeMag. This has been your Social Media Minute. I'm Rachel Fountain. Till next time. today's DNA Deconstructed, I'm going to talk for a few minutes about DNA testing for adoptees, or really for anyone who's searching for a birth family, be it parent, grandparent, or even a great-grandparent. DNA isn't always necessary to track down a biological family, but it has been a great tool for many, especially when there's a lack of records or lack of information. This is where DNA testing comes in as another tool in your toolbox. In recent years, adoptees have turned to DNA testing to get past a dead end on the record front to continue their search. Other individuals not in contact with any or only some branches of a biological family tree have used the same approach too. And this includes people who were conceived with the use of donor egg or sperm or people raised by a single parent or perhaps even adopted by a step-parent who they didn't find out till later wasn't their biological parent. And of course, individuals who were abandoned as infants or small children, often referred to as foundlings. Many advances have made it possible for adoptees to search for answers using DNA more easily than they could even just a few years ago. For instance, types of at-home DNA tests have increased and dropped in price. Genealogical data and documents are accessible online in larger frequencies for adoptees to do preliminary research. Thanks to social media, Many people are easier to track down now, and adoptees are sharing their DNA stories publicly through TV shows and other media, giving others hope for their own searches. What helps one person may not be the same for others. There are different approaches used by adoptees and professionals in this field to find people and information they are searching for. DNA testing has been a game changer. It has opened the doors for adoptees, allowing them to discover more about themselves, their genetic connections to others, and their ethnic background. In some cases, DNA testing has helped adoptees to understand unknown medical risks, which is invaluable in situations when little or no family health history is present. But having used DNA testing and knowing its limitations, you need to understand why DNA is only one piece of the puzzle. The catch in the testing pool is that someone related to you must have tested at the same company. An alternative to this is if a match is tested at a different company but transferred their data to another matching website where your data has been transferred as well. Genealogists recommend you fish in all the ponds, quote-unquote, if possible. In other words, the more places your DNA is, the more websites, more databases, etc., the greater the chance you'll find someone you're related to. Fishing in all the ponds is an expensive proposition. So some people choose to test at one company at a time, or they make use of free or low-cost transfers to get the most out of, them, out of their money. They send in, do a DNA test here and there. In some cases, only one test is needed to get an informative match, but not all the time. 
Since the introduction of DNA testing, more people beyond just the adoptee and birth parents are involved in searches and reunions. Searching now often includes biological siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, and even some grandparents, mostly because of the explosion of the interest in DNA testing itself. Sometimes siblings, cousins, grandchildren of a birth parent are identified by DNA testing. This change in the way people can meet requires, at times, balancing the needs of more people in a family than ever before. So it's something to think about. It will your life be affected, and how will somebody else's? As the public grows more aware of people searching for birth families, some people with DNA accounts have added the term adoption-friendly to their profiles. This is a great way to let others know they are willing to communicate and are able to help with questions related to a possible adoption. This could be a way someone finds a biological relative excited to help them discover their own lineage. Then there's also search angels who are experienced researchers which volunteer their time to individual cases. Many search angels work with adoptees because they have been through a search for a biological family themselves or on behalf of someone they know. They know tips and tricks for searching specific states, which can be a game changer in itself. For some, they seem to have an instinct that leads them to be supportive as they help another person through their own search process. This topic is extensive to say the least, but what's important is that you are going to test. You need to have patience, a good support community to turn to, and time to educate yourself on how and if DNA can help you. With those things in mind, I wish you the best of luck in your searching. See you next time. Although there's a fabulous amount of genealogical information online, we also know that there's a treasure trove sitting in the libraries and archives here in the U.S. and, of course, around the world. So in this new segment of the podcast. It's something we call Stories from the Stacks. We're going to focus on library or archive collections and resources that genealogists are going to love. Now, at the top of the show, you heard us talk about that fire that occurred at the National Personnel Records Center back in 1973. So in today's Stories from the Stacks segment, we'll check back in with Teresa Fitzgerald. She's the Chief of Archival Operations of the National Archives in St. Louis, to find out more about what are the alternative record collections that you can turn to to replace those that were lost. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. And I'm really enjoying this conversation with you because this is something that many of us have heard about at some point in passing, but I haven't heard a lot of the details. So, I mean, the fire itself was so devastating. And I think when you hear about that, just like when we hear about the 1890 census, we start to kind of back away from trying to pursue that line of research. And in in this case, we're talking military research. But there are so many other alternative sources you've been telling me about, and I'm really excited about you sharing some of these with our listeners. Let's just start with talking about alternative resources. What can you turn to if that official file has been destroyed for the military man that you're researching? Yes, I'd be happy to talk about that. Many people think that the official military personnel file must have a copy somewhere, but really there wasn't. That was the only record that exists, and many of the records in our holdings are the only one that exists to this day. So oftentimes when recreating records, we have to return to alternative record sources. Now, if you're only looking for 
one piece of paper, which is the most important piece of paper, the separation document, or TD-214, a lot of returning veterans from war would store those with their local county or state government. So that is one location you can go to that's not here. But if you do not have that luxury or if they did not file that with them, we have ways of recreating their service. It will never be a complete recreation of the official military personnel file, but we can help you as much as possible. Uh, one of the record sources we could turn to is the deceased veterans claim file holds copies of documents from the official military personnel file that assist the veteran to obtain benefits. In many cases, if a record was destroyed, the official military personnel file, the National Archives at St. Louis can go to the Department of Veterans Affairs and ask for copies of those documents back in order to recreate service. Additionally, we have Army and Air Force morning reports, which is the daily record of a veteran's unit, which allows you to trace that veteran through the war. So if he was ever injured or received disciplinary action, you would be able to go to that source to recreate his service on a daily basis through unit information. Now, this is interesting. These are called morning reports. Tell us a little bit more. What is this? Is this a daily documenting by the, the top officer in the group? How does this work? So it's a daily report of the unit's function, and it's often used to verify events or assignments that might not be documented in the official military personnel file. And it was created as part of personnel and payroll functions by the military service departments. Yeah, sounds like a lot of coming and going within the unit and just things that needed to be kind of traceable. Very interesting. So we've got the deceased veterans claim file. And of course, you're saying that the National Archives has this if it has been archived. In a sense, it's not actively still being used in some way. And then we have these morning reports. What other types of files might we turn to? Well, we have hundreds of auxiliary files in our location. Many are, are very useful. Uh, the most popular currently is the individual deceased personnel file. Those files were created if a veteran died in service, often by the quartermaster general, specifically quartermaster general for World War I and World War II, and would document the burial, uh, the in, well, the internment and the disinterment if the family decided to reintern the body into the United States cemeteries. So oftentimes they were given temporary graves, then buried possibly in a national cemetery overseas, and then the family had the option to bring their son or daughter home. And this file would document all of that. Now, in some instances, you get very lucky and you will have witness testimony to what happened to that, that veteran. Oh, interesting. Those are always those firsthand accounts. I'm curious, you know, when I think about Revolutionary War ancestors, I think of some of the pension files, also like for Civil War. Are there pension files, something separate for, let's say, World War I or World War II? I'm very glad you asked that. Pension files came before the deceased veteran claim files. So the pension used to fall under a different agency and uh, eventually it evolved to fall under the Department of Veterans Affairs. So those VA claim files are the basically descendants of the pension file. And yes, they do exist for the World War I and World War II veterans. 
And so they were under the Department of the VA, but do they get then more permanently archived under you guys in, in St. Louis? Yes. Currently in St. Louis, we have the VA claim files from the Civil War. It's an approximate cutoff from what's located in Washington, D.C. up until World War One. The World War II and later have not been accessioned into the National Archives and Records Administration yet. Oh, that's good to know. I mean, we're always talking about you got to know what exists and what does not yet exist or is not yet available so you don't spin your wheels looking for something. I can imagine people are listening, they're thinking, oh, I'd like to make a visit out there. What kind of tips do you have for folks who would like to make a visit to the National Archives in St. Louis? We definitely encourage you to make an appointment. If you are looking for a record that did fall into the fire period, a certain amount of preservation action has to be taken to a B file or a burned file, as we call it, before it can enter into the archival research room. So once you contact us, we will determine what type of records you would like to see. And if you would like to see a record that falls into that burn series, we do ask for you to wait six weeks. It can be sooner. Once you've made that appointment, we will obtain all of the records you are seeking and call you to let you know they're ready, and you can come on site. Now, we do give you an orientation and issue you a researcher ID card. It goes over all of the rules of the research room, and once you enter, we will issue your record. Oh, fantastic. Well, it would be an amazing trip. And I'm sure that many people will be visiting you in the near future. I know you get so many thousands of requests. Thank you so much for taking time here on today's show to tell us more about it. Well, thank you for having me. This just in, a much-anticipated book on DNA and adoption is about to hit bookshelves. I've got the book's editor, Andrew Cook, here to give us all the details. Andrew? Hi, Lisa. Thanks again for having me on. Our newest book coming out is called The Adoptee's Guide to DNA Testing, How to Use Genetic Genealogy to Discover Your Long-Lost Family. And this is going to be such a great resource for adoptees, donor-conceived persons, and other people who, for whatever reason, don't know their birth families to be able to use DNA testing to reconnect to their roots in a really powerful way and in a way that has really become so much more accessible thanks to the advent of DNA testing. And this book is coming out on August 7th, and it's by Tamar Weinberg, who by day is a writer and digital marketing specialist, but by night she helps out adoptees and others with unknown parentage track down their birth families using DNA. Fascinating. You know, I get questions like this all the time. Is there a book out there that's going to help me with this? And this really does. I mean, I think in a long anticipated book, since you're the editor of this book, and you get a chance to see it all firsthand and really comb through it. I'm really curious, what kind of grabbed your attention as you were working on the book? One thing that was very important to Tamar was to include case studies that show the book's research strategies put into real use into real life use and to give readers a sense of hope as they're reading through this that they too can find their birth family. So there are about a half dozen case studies in this book that are really touching and show just how DNA testing can change lives and bring people together. 
Well, it sounds fascinating. I know there'll be a lot of people looking forward to it. And of course, it's called The Adoptee's Guide to DNA Testing. We will have a link in the show notes. If you're listening to this before the uh, launch date, you'll see a link to pre-order. And if not, if you're into the future, you'll be able to grab your copy today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you, Lisa. for joining me for the July 2018 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the podcast from the number one family history magazine. To find all the details, links to the websites, all the info that you need that we covered in this episode, head to the show notes. It's familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. Again, I'm Lisa Louise Cook. You can hear more from me at genealogygems.com and in the Genealogy Gems podcast. Until next time, Have fun climbing your family tree.